Welcome to Stay Engaged. Everything you know and love about the IAB's flagship conference, Engage, but reimagined for these extraordinary times. It's Engage, but offstage. We're tackling some big questions in today's daily offstage session with agency Essence. What will advertising look like in 2030? Will it even exist? Key themes in this session include increasing use of biometrics, technology's impact on consumer behavior, and the deepening relationship between brands and consumers. Here's the team at Essence to explain more. My name is Kate Scott Dawkins. I lead thought leadership and innovation globally at Essence. We're going to talk about the future of advertising in 2030. And I am joined virtually, of course, by my co-author, Mark Seil, Chief Product Officer EMEA at Essence, and one of our esteemed panelists, Jane Osler, Global Head of Media Effectiveness Insights Division at Kantar. We're going to talk about a report that Essence has just released about the future of advertising in 2030. We had noticed that there's been lots written and discussed about the future of technology, but much less has been written about the future of advertising, certainly much more than one to two years out. And we wondered, would advertising as we know it today even exist in 10 years' time? So we identified a non-random sample of nearly 50 experts in the advertising industry, brand marketers, publishers, and people from ad tech agencies and academia. And we asked them all to rank 15 potential scenarios as to their likelihood by 2030. Their answers formed the basis for this report that we recently launched. And we're here to talk with Jane about that, although, again, most of those initial answers were provided in January to February. So that was certainly while coronavirus was, you know, catching headlines in in Asia, but not much around the rest of the world. So we're going to talk about the findings from the report, but also how some of those trends have accelerated in the last two to three months, as much of the world has been shut down and battling the crisis. Mark and Jane, welcome. Hi. Thank you. Hi. (laughs) Thank you very much. Right. I'm going to ask the first question then, Jane. As, as Kate was saying, the world has changed quite a lot in the last couple of months, in some ways bringing forward some of the trends that we were talking about, and in others, are we delaying things? But in your interview, you mentioned about brands adopting more partnerships to go direct to consumer or enter into the subscription economy. So given all of these shutdowns and the stay-at-home orders and all the economic hardships that we're experiencing right now, do you still see that that's going to be happening? And has that even accelerated as a result of this crisis? Well, I think, yeah, if we're talking about partnerships, one of the things we were talking about originally was partnerships where DTC brands were trying to get more real-life presence, for example, in shelf space, in, in stores. And that may well still be the case. But this current crisis has probably accelerated the direct-to-home, direct-to-consumer sales for many more different types of brands than we had perhaps imagined. It kind of depends on the category that you're talking about. And some categories we know at the moment are in decline. Clearly, like 
direct food deliveries from companies perhaps you've never ordered from before. Other companies you notice advertising quite a lot at the moment on social media channels like Peloton, which is a DTC brand, but it's found a new relevance today. I'm sure brands like that will continue to advertise and promote themselves direct to consumers. The other thing that's happened is that also people are reconsidering their views about value for money. So we know that a lot of people are having financial concerns at the moment because their income has been cut or, or they've lost their job. So it might be that there is a new opportunity over the coming years for more value ranges for direct-to-consumer. Normally, the ones that have happened so far have tend to be brands that are things that you might want like leisure wear or beauty products or something. But I think there will be more appearances of brands in different price ranges that offer themselves direct in the coming years, as people are less sure about going out to shops, for example. You mentioned some new brands undertaking the D2C model. I know I saw in the last week or two that Pepsi has recently come out with two direct-to-consumer e-commerce websites. Is there, you know, retail is already under pressure from having to shut its doors in a lot of cases. Is there now added pressure, do you think, from additional brands disintermediating retailers and going direct to consumers and delivery? Yeah, I think it might be a partial disintermediation. In a way, manufacturing brands will clearly have to be, as they have been to date, multi-channel. It might be that the direct-to-consumer channel becomes more important for them. And particularly now, for example, if they're not able to sell themselves at sporting events or music events, for example, then increasing their presence with consumers does make a lot of sense. And many more brands have had to turn to e-commerce. So I think certainly by 2030, e-commerce will be a very important form of as a sales channel. I think, however, this current pandemic has accelerated that massively. And many brands who've just been B2B before as well, particularly in the vegetable and food space, have started selling direct to consumers. So I don't think that's going to go away because one would imagine that our shopping habits are going to continue to change over the coming years. Right. One of the other things we asked all of our panelists about in the report was around data and access to it, what types would be available, how it might be used not only by advertisers, but by other corporations, government. And we were asking those questions. You mentioned the potential reluctance of, of people to allow wide, unfettered access to especially sensitive information. Does that change at all now with tracking being used to facilitate things like contact tracing? You know, does more of our health data end up being shared in order to do things we once took for granted, like boarding a plane or coming into the office or even taking public transport? One of the things that we all know is that attitudes towards data and data privacy are different in different parts of the world. And so, for example, in China and other Asian markets, there are people have less issues with fewer issues with the sharing of their, their personal data, including things like biometric data, for example. And I think in other markets, we've probably, you know, not understood the nature of the value exchange. Like, why why do I 
have to give up personal data? What am I getting in return? I mean, we know from other research that we've done that people, over half of people do object to data being used in an intrusive way. But I think if it's clearly explained that you get some kind of benefit for sharing your data, people will approach that in a much more positive fashion. Now, whether contract tracing apps take off big time in some markets or not, I do think that particularly with health data, we will start seeing the relevance, but only if we're getting a clear exchange in return and a clear benefit. Like you will find out if you've been exposed to someone who has COVID-19 or you will get some tangible reward in return, especially on marketers to make it very clear how data is being used and what people get in return. And publishers will have to become clearer about this value exchange as well, not just for advertising, but for all sorts of data uses. Jane, when I think back to what our panellists said together, there was a split between people who felt that uh, companies would start to gain access to more sensitive types of information, such as biometric data, or not. Or if it did get access to that data, that would be highly under the control of the individuals themselves. I guess the question I'm asking is, now they're giving up location-based and potentially biometric-based data in return for the safety that these contract tracing apps give. Do you think that it's going to loosen attitudes towards businesses asking for this type of data? One thing our panellists were, were clear on was in order to gain access to sensitive services and prove your identity beyond doubt, biometric data was probably the only real way of doing that. And that if you wanted to scale the interactions, for example, to access your banking information securely, you would probably have to share biometric data. Do you think the changes that people are going through right now are going to make that easier for companies to land with people? It could make it slightly easier, but I still think each individual company in each individual category is going to have to make their case very strongly to consumers as to why they need data. Just because I'm happy to share my location on a contact tracing app doesn't mean I'm happy to do it, you know, let let this data become available to other brands. Although in many cases, it probably already is. I'm not sure that people are going to loosen their attitudes. I just think it's incumbent upon the brands to kind of make the case as to why they need it. Now, in many cases, these things are sort of already happening, aren't they? So I might use, you know, voice recognition for my banking app or facial recognition if you go into an Amazon Go store or, you know, some other types of identity resolution software when you go into different environments. So I think these things are gradually creeping in anyway, but it's the more sensitive stuff and how your data is used and how it's shared between companies or between governments and companies that I think is the area that people still will feel some discomfort on and will need to be reassured about. So does that data that you're sharing, your geolocation data, does it exist in a silo or is somebody sharing it and they know that, you know, actually you're in the garden when you're supposed to be recording a podcast at work or something, (laughs) you know. So I think we need to consider all of the uses case by case as consumers and as industry. Just going back to the topic of subscriptions again one more time. So during the interview, uh, you talked about how subscriptions might move into new areas and new sectors, new products. So things like insurance or on-demand areas. So things like if you have expensive camera equipment and you're out and about at certain times with it, then actually rather than taking out an annual policy for that, you might want to only take out a few days' worth of cover because that's the only time when that particular thing is actually needed. And there might be more, more of a pick-and-choose approach to some of these things. Do you think the current changes we're going through right now and the things that we're having to live through right now are going to accelerate that trend or actually put it back? 
I think in my view, the current changes will probably accelerate that change slightly. And some brands have actually been forced into it. If you think about, for example, gyms, where you have a subscription and you might pay a monthly fee towards that subscription, the gym closes for three months. Gym really has no choice to just say, well, we'll just delay or or defer, you postpone your membership. And when we open again, it'll just kick off again and it'll have the right time length attached to it. So I think brands are being forced into thinking of subscriptions as a slightly more flexible thing rather than as a monthly payment and there you are forever. I think that more subscriptions clearly have been taken out in some categories if you look at the entertainment category increased subscriptions to netflix and disney plus which launched in europe fairly recently have really taken off and have really gone a great success but i think the other thing we will start to see there has to be the notion of flexibility in subscriptions somehow i think it's always been the case that you know why can't you just have insurance for your car when you're driving it. It seems crazy if it's kept in a safe place, for example, that you should have to pay money for it just to sit there and do nothing. So I think we will start to see more innovation in the insurance market in particular. But I think subscriptions might, you know, people are trying it in all sorts of different categories, whether it's clothing or beauty, as I mentioned before. But I think we will start to have to see new pricing models, whether it's sort of micro payments. Maybe you set up a basic monthly payment to the provider of the service you want, which is at quite a low level. And then you just boost it when you need a bit of extra service. I think we will all need flexibility in the way we manage our finances. And I think companies like insurance brands are going to have to really start to accommodate that. It's interesting. You mentioned innovation. I think that often comes along with a learning curve, certainly for companies. And I could see marketers who are used to selling a one-off product or sort of an annualized purchase needing to think very quickly about what marketing skills it is that they have and what marketing skills it is that they need to get very good at. We've seen, you know, movies, maybe like the Universal Trolls World Tour that actually went straight to streaming at home. And that marketing product potentially looks quite different. Maybe there's a yearly, see all your movies at home, but that's a, a much different sort of marketing objective and target audience potentially than marketing for a, a single you know, theater release. How do you think brands need to start thinking about upskilling teams or, or, or changing the types of marketing that they that they do in-house or within agency as they're looking into these new business models and these new pricing models? Yeah, I think that's a really good point about sort of shopping differently. And in a way, as consumers, we're already used to this on things like Spotify, where there was a sudden change really over actually only a couple of years where people moved you know in the main from buying physical music products to buying a service and streaming and you don't own anything yourself you just you just buy it and you can have as much as you want so it's a fundamental shift in the market which will probably begin to affect more categories and as you say begin to affect their marketing because if people aren't just buying things as a one-off they're becoming continuous customers you have to know more about them you have to appeal to them you might have to think about how you segment them and how you 
get them to continue to be your customers, how you get them to increase their volumes, their frequency of purchase, for example. And I think, you know, there are some brands that do this really well. I mean, if you look at Amazon, is is a sort of obvious example where they have lots of different financial models for their customers to appeal to. You can buy stuff, you can buy stuff from third party providers, you can also subscribe and you get a whole load of things thrown in for free, including delivery and entertainment. And those kinds of models do rely on scale. But I think the question is, as you move towards more brands becoming more subscription-led, then you need to understand your customers. And then it comes back to the basics about what first-party data are you collecting? How are you using it? How are you continuing to innovate and keep your customers with you as opposed to going to competitors? And yet, manage your cash flow and be flexible in times when perhaps you're not available or they can't reach you. So I think lots of many more brands are having to wrestle with the entire kind of marketing spectrum than perhaps did do before where they've had their old ways of doing things and those were fine. But you're right, it's about understanding the customer is what it comes down to. Yeah, I think what you've identified there is the key opportunity, I think, of the next 10 years is if you can understand your customer and use first-party data appropriately, then I think you really have the keys to establishing profitable longer-term relationships with them. In this current crisis, do you see any signs of brands innovating in this way, or has it all just been all hands on deck to just survive during this crisis? I'm going to come back to the example I mentioned at the beginning, actually, which is I think a brand like Peloton has actually in a way, taken advantage of this crisis. They've realised that they're in a situation where people are, they have no choice and they're forced to exercise from home. And if you are in a certain income bracket, you can afford not only to pay a one-off cost for the hardware, if you like, the bike, but an ongoing cost for a subscription. And I think brands having to kind of ramp up and cope with excessive consumers demand is something that a lot of brands have learned in the last couple of months actually and in the main while there might have been a few bumps along the way many of them have sorted out their supply chains incredibly quickly shifted their manufacturing models managed to be much more flexible in their delivery models as well and in a way they've learned the hard way but ultimately what it comes down to is that most brands have had to accelerate their digitization in some form or other. And by that, I don't just mean their marketing. I mean, all of their intelligence, how they deal with supply, how they deal with excessive and seemingly random customer demand, which is very peaky. And I think that normal seasonality, which we have been used to for many years, you know, in some markets, it'll be kind of, there'll be an Easter peak, there'll be a sort of summer, there's a back to school peak, and then there's a Christmas thing. Those things have slightly been blown out of the water in the last couple of months in many markets around the world. And in a way, it could be that we all have to come to terms with this uncertainty about demand and supply. China is a really interesting market. I mean, we often look to China for the future. And there, you know, there are examples of really interesting influencers or key opinion leaders, as they call them, who will co-create products, whether it's handbags or, you know, shoes or fashion items, and then promote them and sell them on one day. So the evening out of retail is not something that really 
happens so much there anymore. Products drop on a certain day and that's how you create a buzz around them. So I think it's the fundamental shift in how we think about normal patterns. So looking 10 years out and the themes I think we've touched on, we've heard from you, Jane, certainly holistic digital transformation um, across more than just the, the marketing organization and certainly a you know increased focus on first party data, the transparency that needs to come along with that and the attention and the closeness to consumers uh, that will be exceedingly important, not only in the next you know, six months of this year, but definitely over the next 10 So thank you so much, Mark and Jane. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Stay Engaged from IAB UK. Thank you for tuning in to this offstage audio session. If you've enjoyed this session, please share it and tag at IAB UK on Twitter or Instagram. Subscribe wherever you're listening to hear the rest of the Stay Engaged sessions and for the regular IAB UK podcast. In the next session, Google reflects on their extensive trends analyses spanning the last two months, interpreting what the nation has been searching for during the lockdown, while inviting listeners to draw their own conclusions. Coming up as part of Stay Engaged.